You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas that are shaping our patterns of consumption for the better. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Christy Tillman, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to have you on. I've, I've been following your work for years at this point. Um, I want to talk about some of the exciting new projects that you have been working on recently. But we were when we scheduled this a few weeks ago, it was before Slack got acquired for $27 billion. Now that it's been a few weeks, I feel like we got to touch on that. How do you feel? Are you like happy, sad, anxious, excited? Like what's been the feeling that you've had? (laughs) Yeah, I've been on sabbatical and working on my own projects. And so I've moved on from Slack. But I do have feelings about um, the Salesforce acquisition. Um, I wasn't on the inside to kind of feel the internal bit. So this is totally just my own opinion. Am I happy? Yeah. There'll be some hopefully financial gain from that. That You know, that makes me a little happy. Um, the stock price definitely has doubled really since that announcement came up. So it's it's been quite lucrative. Um, but in some ways, you know, I think it remains to be seen, like, you know, the results of the deal. You know, I really had hoped and bet that I had worked at Slack for four years and put all of my energy into something that would eventually become sort of Salesforce size itself um, and hoping to have a big company outcome. So in some ways, it's a little bittersweet to see them be acquired so early after the post-IPO period. But in other ways, I think it's going to be really good for the company. In the sense that they'll get the infrastructure they need, they'll get the bundling they need to compete with teams, they'll get the sales force they need to sell Slack, and Slack can be a, a you know a part of a of a really great bundle itself. So great to hear that Stuart and the gang are going to still be autonomous and be able to run Slack on its own. So I really wish them a lot of luck um, in kind of pursuing their dreams of you know growing Slack bigger. Um, so, you know, it's sort of mixed emotions in that regard. Yeah, I feel kind of the same way. I've been using Slack pretty much since it launched. And it was like, <laughs> it was a pretty big surprise to see them being acquired by Salesforce. And and I've heard it both ways. Like you said, I think, and on the one hand, I feel like it's a win for for the good guys in a way. But at the same time, I would have liked to see it stay independent. But we'll know in a few years where it goes. Exactly. You've been busy over the past few months. <laughs> you have always had like a lot of different side projects, I feel. Yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, Tomorrow Looks Bright. Is this, wh- wh- how do you describe it? It's kind of your umbrella for various different side projects that you've been up to. Exactly. I don't even know what it is. I, it's, 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 exactly. It's just it's this little umbrella kind of skunk work thing that um, right now the container for my side projects but, you know, it's one of those things I'm also not in a hurry to kind of figure out what it is. I'm trusting the process that it will work itself out in what it's supposed to be. And so it was sort of like some of the stuff with Made in the Future is starting to help me really figure that out. And so Made in the Future is one of my other side projects. And so I would, it's right now I'm just calling it like a creative think tank, which is just basically like an umbrella to hold all my side projects. I was talking to Maurice Cherry on Revision Path. He's like, Christy, all your projects are time-based. Uh-huh. Tomorrow, future, blah, blah, blah. So it's kind of like my kind of ode to the idea that my projects will have some good impact on the future, tomorrow, 
it remains to be seen what it will be, but I think it will work itself out over the next year, I would say. That's actually a really good insight. And I, I want to jump off of that. Like, mm-hmm. do you have a picture of what is the, t- <laughs> the like time horizon when you think about the future? Is that five years from now, 30 years from now, 100 years from now? What, it, what, what is your time horizon for that? My time horizon is tomorrow. <laughs> literally. Um, <laughs> tomorrow is literally the future, right? Like we're it's today, it's Sunday, Monday is the future, right? You know, that's not a little kind of cheekish, but I'm serious in that we are incrementally building the future. The the future is not a destination that you kind of like are waiting to get to. You are incrementally building the future now. So the things we do now matter. And that's kind of the point behind my side project, right? Usually my projects around being equitable in some regards. And so that's super important to me. And so what we do now about that matters 10 years from now. So I don't see the future as a destination that's waiting on us to land. Mm. I feel like every day we add a brick and it's important to be conscientious about that brick. So the, the, the timeline to me, the horizon is pretty short. I feel like a lot of the most pressing problems that we have going forward are things that we need to be concerned about right now. Like there's not, this is, we don't have the, the luxury of time is not on our side. Um, and I have felt that very much, you know, even more through COVID. Mm. And thinking more about like my relationships with people, things I want to do is like pretty much I'm in that stage of life where I, if I think I want to do something, I should pretty much be trying to do it. It's not, you know, I can't sit on things for five or 10 years. So my time horizon of the future is really short. <laughs> well, the good news is that it, we're already in the future compared to when I asked you that question a minute yes, ago. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We've made progress. <laughs> we're we're barreling forward at, at every second that goes by. So what where does that sense of urgency come from? And what what has this year, I don't know, sparked in you? That's a really good question. Um the sense of urgency is it's like, uh, I'm a one woman show and I have all these projects and if I don't get them out, they won't happen. Mm-hmm. So um that's sort of my sense of urgency is the execution of these projects that need to happen. Because I feel like I'm doing some force of good. So that's where my sense of urgency comes from. And how how has this year, you mentioned COVID, like how has this year changed your perspective on how to channel that urgency into something that, you know, can have positive results soon, tomorrow? <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of like, okay, it's really multifaceted for me. So there's on one end, there's like, holy shit, anything can happen. Like no one just came out of nowhere for most people. So there's a sense of urgency to get things done, but you never know kind of what can happen. But then there's also this delayed time. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about, oh, it's a pandemic and you can't think through the pandemic and you can't be productive through the pandemic. I totally disagree, at least for myself. And I realize that's a privileged position to be in. So I want to contextualize that. But I have had all this time to be unproductive and I want to use that time to be productive. We will never get this amount of time again, ever. <laughs> yeah. to like just be to just be doing things so i wanted to make as much use of that time as possible um and to get things going so that's been kind of the things that have been driving me now you mentioned made in the future um it's a fellowship i yes. i would love this might be a really dumb question but i would love for you to describe what is a fellowship how do you differentiate a fellowship from an internship or an apprenticeship what are the differences in your mind Totally. So for the fellowship, the fellows are to me are they're a selected group of people. So they've been especially curated for a purpose. 
Um, they don't work for me. They are there to receive benefit and they've earned it through, you know, going through the application process, the interview process, um, and meeting some level of requirement. And so we're actually there to work for the fellows. And that's what I've told all the mentors and the sponsors. Like, this is about the fellows. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's not about our egos. Like, we're here to make sure that the fellows succeed. And I think that's a little bit different than internships and apprenticeship, where there's sort of an exchange of labor for cash. I want the fellows to feel seen, feel heard, feel understood, feel supported without having to give anything other than their attention time to the fellowship, right? Um, and making the best of it. But it's really about them and nurturing them to their success. And so you did a first kind of group of fellows just recently. What was your what was your goal with that? What did you learn from that? Oh boy, I haven't even come down from the high enough to decompress about like what I've learned, but I am going to do a medium article um, following up with what I've learned as I kind of like come down a little bit on the high. We had our first cohort of fellows. Um, we had 35 fellows, which I thought was pretty good. I, we were aiming for 50, but you know, I, my, my taste, my bar for excellence is pretty high. So I didn't want to force a number. I wanted to pick who I thought who met the requirements. So we had a nice full kind of 35 group of folks, and we spent three days together with mentors from a variety of companies, tech and design companies, and also some independent multidisciplinary artists as well. And we spent three days together having real talk about careers, trajectory, about industry, shop talk, money, building relationships, first jobs. You name it, we talked about it. It was really three days worth of just like gems dropping from some really esteemed folks like Steve Johnson from Netflix. We had Hallie from Wayno. We had Lacey Jordan, who's an independent artist, um, who just did a really big campaign for Target and Bentley. Um, we had Diane Holton from AARP. with a really diverse group of people. Experience-wise, gender and ethnicity-wise, um, and, you know, thought-wise as well. And so we spent three days together, just huddled and talked and had real talk. We had a no social media policy in terms of direct quotes to people, so that we could be really explicit and open. Um, and I think the mentors, which it was designed to do, but the mentors learned just as much from the fellows as the fellows learned from the mentors. So it was really like three amazing days. And then for the rest of the fellowship, the fellows will be matched with the mentor for a year. And then the mentors have some commitments that they must meet with the fellows in terms of meeting with them X amount of times per year, introducing to them other people. Um, and there's going to be some other outside folks that come in and do programming um, with the fellows in terms of craft and, and craft and design building skills as well. So they'll have a full kind of rigorous year of mentorship and craft building sessions as well. So the goal is that to get folks hireable and get them ready for their first real jobs and or get promoted at their job. So we have some early career professionals who are like in their first job. They've only been there a year or so. So we had a cutoff of, you know, being your first job for two years. So everyone is pretty kind of in the new range. And so what we want to do is get those folks either hireable or gaining momentum in their current role. 
over the past four years working at Slack, you've been working on a, a product that is being used by hundreds of millions of people. We haven't touched on this, but you're going to be starting at Facebook next year. And that's a product that's being used by billions of people. <laughs> like, what is it like? And was there an itch for you to go and create something for, you know, 30 people instead? Like, what? how do you <laughs> think about designing those things and creating those experiences that are, you know, at such different scales? Oh, that's interesting. I never even thought about that. Well, I mean, I know for the event, there had to be a certain level of intimacy that I wanted um, to happen in terms of the fellows having, being able to really connect with the mentors. Um, so this was the, this wasn't going to be a conference for two or 300 people. There had to be real human connection there. And that that happened even over the software, which was pretty impressive. And so thinking about, you know, the scale of the event, that was really necessary for us to accomplish what we want to accomplish. I think there are some ways to scale that from a technological perspective. And there is something I'm thinking about. Um, I was like, it's 35 enough. But this is, you know, this is a step up from my one-on-one call that I used to do. So <laughs> yeah. I used to do one-on-one calls. So now at least I'm at one to 35 now. So I feel like this is an increase. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's and and we haven't touched on one of the most important things, obviously, which is that the the people that were handpicked are all from underrepresented um, communities and ethnicities. And so, you you talked about getting them ready to move to the the next phase of of their career. That is an interesting question of like, how do we scale that up um, beyond thirty five people, or how do you take what you're doing and get it to become maybe like uh, more of a norm across the industry somehow? And yeah, and you know, I, I think a lot about that. One of the things I was super inspired by when I created Made in the Future was my even my own experience when I went to business school. I went to business school at Florida A&M University. And um, at the time, we had Dean Sybil Mobley, who ran the university, who ran, not the university, she ran the School of Business and Industry. And um, Dean Mobley was known in the business education world as creating what's called a, the first professional development curriculum. And a lot of schools copied her style. There's actually a really good video on YouTube. If you type in Dean Sybil Mobley, it will come up and talk about this what she built at Florida a University. And so that professional development component that we had to go through at Florida a was super inspirational for me for this program. And obviously more than 35 people graduate. <laughs> Um, from that school um, every year. So there are ways to scale it up. It could be done through technology. It could be done through more humans. I really also want to see what the appetite is for the industry to take on these folks. So that's another part of the discussion that needs to happen. We have some really strong sponsors and wanting to be in discussions also with other people who want might want to take on fellows as you know first-time hires or apprentices. So there's a lot of work to do in the area to make that match. Um, that's sort of the next level, right? Okay, we, we give you the professional development education. Now let's meet with folks who say, claim they want diverse talent and let's see if we can make that match. And part of that is, okay, we've done X, Y, and Z to prep these people and screen these people and saying, okay, we're, we're bringing the best talent to you that we could have found. Because everyone says, oh, I can't find underrepresented people and they won't apply. I don't know who they are. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Well, here's me with 35 <laughs> talented folks. 
Who wants them? Okay. So that's the next level of discussion that I really want to have with the industry and with people who want, say they want talent. Okay. Well, I have talent. Let's, let's make the match. So that's kind of the next goal, you know, prepping the fellows and then starting to help them make matches. Are you seeing with, with that younger generation, the people who are maybe in their early twenties, like, and, and coming into the industry and are, among these underrepresented groups, are you seeing a difference in the way that they're approaching things than maybe you did, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago or, or, or more? So I, I want to put a caveat to that in that all of the folks in this um, group of people aren't what I would call super young. And some of them are career switchers. Some of them are boot campers. So the, mm. the age ranges from, oh yeah, traditional four-year student to 20, 20 something to, people who have had full blown out careers in other areas and now want to come into design. So that's great. Mid thirties. So yes, there's a wide range of folks there. And one of the things that came out, it was a really pivotal moment during day three was that this group of people are so talented. They're so articulate and aware of the obstacles that they have but they're also very motivated and they are very charged up about their future. And someone asked, like, how could it be that you guys are so great? You're so smart. You're so talented and you're not hired. It was a very big question that, you know, we kind of just, there was a nice big pause of silence there because it just talks about the state of the industry and how hard it is to get hired now. So, you know, design is I don't know. Design has changed a lot. These new designers are so good. They know all the software. They can do crazy, amazing things in the software. When I was in design school, when I left design school, we still have portfolio books, right? And you right. Open them up. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. I you brought like in a- my whole like 11 by 17 like <laughs> portfolios. Yeah. Exactly. You have your little white gloves. So the, like the one copy of the book you put together won't get dirty, right? So yeah. Uh, that's when I love design school. So I'm always amazed at how much new designers know and how early they know it. And they are just really good at tools. You know, we live in a really tool-centered kind of design world right now. So the, the pace at which people switch back and forth between softwares and learn new softwares, you know, I think it's just a different arena for newer designers. But I think, you know, what still holds true is being able to solve problems be able to think through problems. This, the the tools will always change, but you know the thinking um, and being able to do that in the team sport is will never change. So, so what's so what's your hypothesis on why they're not getting hired? Have you? Oh, racism. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> but there must. Be- <laughs> <laughs> it's not even a hypothesis. It's what it is. The it is the answer. But so many, like you said, okay, I'm, I'm going to ask a very naive question, but so many tech companies in particular have been making a, a push towards that and, and, and changing that. Is there a, a point of view that you have on how companies need to change to basically like make themselves more open to other candidates? Like, I, I guess I don't really understand, especially with companies that are so focused on diversity, why that match is not happening right now. Yeah, so if you think about it, all of those pushes are come from PR, PR department, and then the the actual hiring comes from managers that like run teams, and there are no incentives for managers to hire candidates that don't look like them. 
So, <laughs> I mean, it's really a very, it, it, it's such a, like, I don't mean to oversimplify it, but it's really that stupid. Yeah. It's just, a, you know what I mean? So it's just a very stupid system. So all of the stuff you see on Twitter and on on Facebook and Google comes from PR agencies, but then you have hundreds of hiring managers with very varying aptitudes and desires and wishes um, and business constraints um, down at the bottom. And then you don't have companies that have any policy or any incentives. So people just do what they do, right? Do you think there's companies out there that are walking the walk at, at all? No. And what would that look like? How would that? How would they change their hiring practices? <laughs> how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> we got another half hour, but we've got a lot of companies. You know, we got a lot of founders listening to us right now, and I, mm-hmm. I think that you know, if you can do some myth busting on their behalf, they you know they might want to change the way that they're approaching that. I I, I vacillate between being hopeful and being a full on skeptic because I understand the problem so intently that I know that the real answer to your question is that if you wanted to make companies completely equitable, you have to literally do so much that it would feel uncomfortable to everyone else because that's how unequal the companies are right now. Like, so the the real answer is it would take a lot of work. The reasonable answer is that if you're a founder and if you want to think about these problems very early on, you want to start hiring for your teams and hire diverse teams very early on. Because what happens is companies get really big and then they think about it and then it's too late. Their numbers are already against them. Also, if you know everyone comes from one company, goes to another. The the folks at Twitter will come to work at Slack and the person at Slack will go to Salesforce. And, right, and so people carry those values with them between companies. Uh, so it's the same people that are causing the drama, right? So... The guy at Facebook that doesn't want to hire someone else. And then when he goes to Salesforce or goes to Slack or goes to Adobe or wherever he is, right, he's going to be that same guy. So, you know, there's so many different issues that it would take a really long time for me to dig into them. And honestly, it w- I would charge you a lot of money to fix this. Too. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're starting today, if yeah. you're if you're starting a company today, are there any, do you have any advice for someone kind of putting in the best practices? Yeah, if you're starting a company today, try to make your founding team diverse, or at least your first level of hiring managers. Think wide and hard about who your first set of executives are going to be. But all of that sets the tone um, for what's to come. Who's going to be your head of HR? Um, who's going to be your first set of recruiters, right? Are you going to just pick the people that you that you know from the last company that, you know, don't really care about that? Or are you going to go find someone new? I think a lot of this, too, is people not really want to take a, a chance on other types of people. And they really go with the safe bet. I think we call that pattern matching. Yeah. So, you know, there's just so many different things that that it's sort of like a, a death by a thousand cuts. But one of the things that we want to do with Made in the Future is start to build those and cultivate those relationships. Because that's really what's happening is our our industry is a relationship built industry. So when you who you know is who you can recommend. So starting to actually know more people of color is also a big issue. You know, a lot of a lot of us go to work and then we go home and we don't ha- we don't you don't interact with anyone that doesn't look like you. You know, you, you can't if you don't have any friends of color, who do you make job recommendations to? And so you're telling me with the 35 people that came out of the fellowship, 
that people aren't scrambling to hire them? I haven't put them up to be hired yet. Like I haven't, that's not part of this kind of first round. Yeah. I'm thinking about how maybe the future develops, you know, more in the future. There's a lot of business development and technical development that we have to kind of do um, to make that a reality. Mm. But if you're interested in, 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 in an apprentice, I would love to talk to you. I am. <laughs> I definitely think that there are, there are definitely. many folks in the, in the cohort that I believe are hireable right now. Yeah. And so if you were to ask me, hey, do you have any any folks in your cohort that are hireable? I absolutely have some recommendations depending on what you're looking for. Well, I've got an open UX design job that I'm looking for right now. So I got to talk to you after this. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> are you thinking about doing some, some more cohorts um, next year? Yes. And I have to figure out how to do that with a job. Uh-huh. I, was able to, I was able to build this one outside of work. It was a lot of work. Yeah, I had tried to get this off the ground a couple of years ago and I couldn't do it. And so I finally figured out what I needed to do, which is basically hire a team to help me. And I was able to do that. Obviously, it made all the difference in the world. Is there a way that this could be become more distributed? You you partnered with some great people who, who were mentors. I wonder if it can become something that maybe requires less of your time somehow and can be that that responsibility can be shared. Yeah, I think there are ways to make this distributed. I think the other part for me is where my time, where a lot of things take my time is the building of the fellowship, mm-hmm. um, the building of the, the cohort, the actual cohort. Also, too, there's a lot of biz dev stuff on, on the side that I want to do. So there's a lot of ways to make this work economically that I want to make sure the program remains in you know is integrity. But I also don't want to have to beg sponsors every year. So that's something I kind of want to um, get past as well. So my time needs to be spent thinking about how do I evolve this. And so that's a big chunk of time. Do you think 2020, you know, obviously we had the George Floyd murder and kind of a lot of public discussion about these issues this year. Is there anything that came out of that that gives you hope about the future? So I don't think much has come out of that. But I do think that some increased level of awareness of what the trauma that um, African-Americans have to go through in this country and more people recognizing that than not is probably a good thing. So I think the discussions will just have to continue. Yeah. You know, it's easy to be flip and say, oh, nothing really happened. Um, But I do know that progress is slow. So I think more people being aware is a good thing. But when you're on the other side of it, you know, it's like, you're like, man, I wish this would speed up. <laughs> yeah. You know, right? And so um, on the other side of it, you're just like, oh, okay. But, you know, maybe 50 years from now, you know, we'll have better police reform. We'll have, you know, have had real conversations about incarceration, how to how to have returning citizens who pay their time, how to bring those people back into society, society in a better way. You know, it would be great to have those Discussions move faster, but, you know, progress is slow. And you've been obviously involved with Slack and now you're going to be working at Facebook. Like, How do you think about the the responsibility of these platforms as it relates to all of these challenges? Because, the, you know, I'm sure that like when you, you start to have a, a product that's being used by millions and millions of people, uh, you know, you can't. You're designing for people that you're not always going to agree with. The people within a Slack group are not going to agree with each other. 
it was fascinating to see this year with all of the upheaval, like Slack coming up a lot in news articles about company cultures and people saying like, Mm -hmm. this all started in a Slack channel where people (laughs) were talking about whatever. And, and, you know, these things are just kind of like part of our daily life now, these platforms. And, And how do you think about creating these environments, these digital environments? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So so one of the things I'm really excited about going to Facebook about is the scale at which I would get to work. It's going to be a, a whole new learning for me. Um, and <laughs> they kept hitting me over the head with that in the interview. And I say that lovingly because I would make some, I would make certain assumptions and it would say, no, 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 our data says X, Y, and Z. And it made me realize that my own intuition about how things are is not what I'm going to necessarily be able to rely on. Um, and that's going to be a really new thing because of just the level of data that they have um, and what they know about their users. So I think from a design perspective, it's going to really challenge me because I'm going to find out a lot of things that I thought were true are not and vice versa. Um, and so, you know, making platforms equitable and making sure people are able to express themselves, giving people the opportunity to do that, I think is even more important now. Yeah. And I mean, I think everyone has the experience. I mean, we're just uh, a few weeks after Thanksgiving, but um, probably most people mostly stayed at home. But if you, everyone has the experience of going to Thanksgiving and, and you know, having some family member that you disagree with quite vehemently. And I think that like, that experience is now multiplied by thousands as you just kind of exist online. And that seems like really one of the biggest design challenges of our time. And I, I, I wonder if you have like thoughts on where we should go with that. I do. I mean, I struggle with the idea that people should be able to freely express themselves. And then I also think about how I think about this a lot, how complex our society is. I, I honestly think and this is really a, a super abstract point, but it'll get to you, get to your question. I almost think that society is almost too complex for our human brains. Like we weren't designed to be in a society that's so complex. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of energy and interactions to live a successful adult life. And you can't make very many mistakes. Um, and when I think about all of the stuff that we have to do just to have a good life, I'm like, boy, this is really nuts. No wonder so many people like fall out or, you know, have vices or, um, you know, have trouble that follow them for life because it's just so hard, um, to be a successful adult. So going back (laughs) to kind of thinking about like the systems that we live in, I think all of it is probably very too complex. We don't really know the outcome. The thing is, though, is it exists, and I think it's important for us to realize that we're all doing this for the first time ever as humans. I think that also is something that we never talk about. You know, we get upset at platform A or platform B or platform C, but they didn't do this right, or they didn't do this right, or they didn't do this right. But really, like, we're all doing this for the first time as human beings. This, none of this stuff even existed 10 years ago. 20 years ago. That's a great point. So, you know, we're not going to get it right all the time or even close to all the time. Now, I'm all for harm mitigation and and thinking in that kind of lane about, like, how do we do less harm to humans, obviously. But, like, you know, we're also on the cutting edge of creating just a, a whole new system of communication that didn't exist even 15 years ago. So I think we also have to cut ourselves some slack as we move forward. 
Yeah, there's a there's a question of of a little bit of patience there, and um, maybe it's in a a teenage moment. But then there's also how do you create that system? Like it's an opportunity to create a system that doesn't bear some of the biases of the old systems. Right. And it's it's interesting to figure out can we do anything about that? Can we design it in such a way that it doesn't bring those like historical biases in yeah i think we can i I think we have to be honest about and 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 interrogate those biases we still haven't been really honest about like our own kind of historical reality i think that is like the basis of a lot of this so once we can even be honest about that then i think maybe some of then we can go to the next level Uh, but like i said i think a lot of this is so complex that Humans are going to get it right about 50% of the time and the other 50% they're not. And there has to be some sort of um, latitude for that. It makes me hopeful for sure. What are some some other things that are making you hopeful in, <laughs> in 2020 in these dark days? That's a good question. Um, I'm really, like I said, I'm still on the high for Made in the Future. So seeing what Made in the Future um, turns into and seeing what the second cohort might look like. I've been doing some investing and so spending time with some of the companies that I've invested in over 2021. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I've invested in some really early stage companies. So seeing them evolve and, you know, being able to help them to success is going to be a big part of my 2021. I'm really looking forward to joining Facebook and seeing how that matures. Um, that's probably the biggest thing that's going to happen in, in 2021. So really excited about working there, working with the team. Is there a piece of advice that you found yourself giving over and over again to um, some of the founders that you've been working with on the investment side or some of the fellows? <laughs> so for the founders that I've been working with, um, really one of the things that I've been saying to a lot of them is don't design yourself into a corner. And what I mean by that is... Um, it's such an early stage. There's room to try a couple of different things um, and spending a lot of time investing in, you know, f- really polished design before product market fit is probably not um, a really good use of your resources at this point in time. Let's get how this thing works. Now people are going to use it and respond to it down before adding polish. A lot of startups just look so good now. Remember when startups used to be ugly? <laughs> like, yeah. seriously. Maybe like, we should go back to that. <laughs> yeah, <thing>. exactly. <laughs> Remember like 10 years ago, a, a startup was so ugly. There was no expectation that it looked good. The The logo was some clip art. That, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like a startup was ugly and we expected it and we still used it. And now startups are looking like, polished company we've got a lot of like frameworks and and toolkits out there that get get people to to second base quicker exactly so now startups look really great right out of the box and that creates a lot of pressure for founders um to use their hard-earned resources Mm. um polishing things that they don't even know if anyone wants yet and so trying to help founders kind of not make that mistake is one of the things that i spend a lot of time on with the fellows i think one of the things that i said to them is that the game is rigged whether you're winning or losing. And for them, for underrepresented people, that is true. We're all playing a word game, and I think it's important to understand that even when you're winning or losing. When you're losing, you understand that you're playing a rigged game and it's not necessarily about you. And then when you're winning, you understand that you're playing a rigged game and it keeps you humble about about your success and making sure you reach back and help other people 
to win with you and not to get too haughty about it. So um, I think that's a kind of an important lesson that I, I really wanted people to kind of understand. And we talked a little bit about that at the fellowship. One of the questions that we've been asking a lot on the podcast this year, um, I feel like kind of ties those two pieces of advice together. And it's been, how do you give your company or your startup a soul? How do you make, how do you, and that sounds kind of abstract, but it's really, how do you give it something of its own? And a lot of those like design frameworks and things that get you to some level of polish really fast with your, with your product can kind of artificially skip you forward in, in a way that you don't get a chance to like work through those imperfections and figure out what it is that is you. And similarly, I think there's something about even what you were describing about a first-time founder creating their first leadership team and how to bring the right people together. I'm curious if, if that sparks any ideas for you and what you think about like when, when someone's starting something or maybe even just when you started Tomorrow Looks Bright, what, what was it that you wanted to infuse into it? That's an interesting question because I was just kind of like knocking my head against the wall thinking about Made in the Future and Tomorrow's Looks Bright because what I did was that I um, a friend of mine that kind of runs, she's a consultant. Um, I worked with her and I hired her to help me get it off the ground, the the fellowship, and she was instrumental in helping with the operations for that. And one of the things that like as her, as her contract comes to a close, I'm just like, oh, either I have to replace her or I need to find a co-founder. But what I think that I really miss is co-creating. Um, and so I and, and working with her was fantastic. But I worked with her in a in kind of an employee capacity and not a co-founder capacity. Right. And so I really want to co-create with someone. So the reason I bring that up is because that's kind of one of the values I want to infuse into Tomorrow Looks Right. I want I want hmm. it to be co- a co-creation with another collaboration Um, exactly another mind and so thinking about like what your founding team or founding company values are and starting to develop those early um, to kind of guide you is super important usually people don't start thinking about their values until they have some employees and even those employees aren't kind of like on brand and i'm like okay i got employees now we all need to think we need to build a culture when I think it's really the other way around. If you have, a, if you're starting to think about what kind of culture you want, and and acting in integrity with that, and and use that to, as you're building your first kind of a leadership team, it seems like you would you would get more value out of that early on. Well, you were saying earlier that um, a lot of hiring decisions are are based on, I guess, what is a safe choice, and people are not taking enough chances and and when you do that it's it's harder you know you're taking mm-hmm. a risk or you're having to think through what is my culture what am i going to what are the what are my values that takes more time you know if you try to jump to the shortcut each time you're missing out on on those foundations to some extent yeah and a lot of hiring choices too they have business constraints right you have a manager that's like frazzled they they have a role that needs to be filled and it's just easy to start cutting away at the values and going for speed or efficiency. I, I you know, I, I really think that we have to look at incentives and incentivizing incentivizing people to act in the way we do, the same way we do with product design, right? And that's the other thing I don't really understand because we spend a lot of time shaping our products and talking about how to get users to do X, Y, and Z. But when it comes to companies, people are like, ah, 
we can't control our employees. We can't ask them to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm just like, it's the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> you can incentivize your employees to act in ways in which you deem valuable, but you have to find value in that. And that's where, to me, there's a misalignment in when companies say they care about diversity and inclusion, and then when they don't meet those numbers, is a misalignment in value. They don't really mean it. There's there's an interesting tension that I keep coming back to between like the urgency and the like sort of incremental nature of what you were talking about at the very beginning. Like we can make an improvement right now, like in the next <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> Literally, today's Sunday, tomorrow's Monday. Let's make a let's make an incremental improvement, and then the kind of like massive change that is also needed. It it feels like it could be a little bit overwhelming to try to figure out, like, am I making enough of a difference with these small incremental changes? Like I said before, I think incentives are super important because you have to prioritize, like, your energy and what you can do, you know, making incremental changes versus one big change. What is what is driving the decision to do one or the other or both? So here's an example. Like, say you're a hiring manager, right? And so you can control who comes in on your team and who you hire, you also sit on the leadership board of your ERG at the company, which is the employee resource group. And you have the ability to impact leadership programs and people of color programs because you're on the people of color kind of leadership team there. And you can make big impact. You know, at Slack, we had an ERG called Mahogany. And what we would do is we hold um, events that were for recruiting, right? And so people would come, we would meet them and and have entertainment or a guest speaker, right? And then those people would get recruited. So the whole purpose of the event was actually recruit recruitment. Um, and so you can do those incremental types of events. Being on an ERG board is a lot of work outside of your actual job duty. And then you have all the interviews and all the resumes to look through when you're doing as a hiring manager, which you can make a bigger jump because you can actually hire from that pipe. And so, you know, there are many, many times when you're forced to make a decision like, oh, I can't go to that leadership meeting or I can't go to this thing or that thing because I have X, Y, and Z. Like I said, it comes back to the incentives of how what's driving you to make those decisions. Right now, it's just your own individual choices, whether it's time, what your project calls for, whether it's what your boss thinks is the best use of your time. A lot of times you don't get credit for work done outside of projects, even though it benefits the company, right? So there's all these other different drivers that causes people to make those different decisions. But the company never really incentivizes you to do certain things that benefits it um, in terms of continuing to meet their diversity goals. So like I said, until companies incentivize managers and other employees to act a certain way, I just really will not believe that they really are serious about their diversity and inclusion goals. Mm. Do you think that the technology industry versus other industries, like, have you have you been able to, like, see how other industries are doing this? Do you think the tech is, like, going in the right direction? <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, I haven't been in other industries in a long time. Yeah. And so I don't know. I feel like we talk about it a lot. I'm not sure how much other industries talk about it a lot because I just don't have any frame of reference. I don't know. I don't think we're going in the right direction either. Really? <laughs> yeah, I don't. What would it look like? You're just I, what I what I've been hearing is is just that it's just not um, dramatic enough of a change. 
I think if the major company that released their diversity and inclusion reports were making consistent increases year over year, that would look like success. Yeah. So instead of being stuck at 3% of your technical people being black for years and years, and maybe if it went to 5 to 7, 7.5, 8, that would look like progress. But no company is even doing that. Break down the, the, you mentioned the pipeline problem, like break down that myth for people. Well, I think there's a couple of things. I do think there's a pipeline problem just on the sheer idea that like from a numbers perspective, how many folks are in the pipeline to be qualified. But I don't think that is an excuse because I think there's still enough people want to a hire to all, all the jobs don't have to be technical. So there are plenty of other jobs at a tech company that can be filled with people of color. And then the other big thing is the pipe being leaky. So all the people that are in tech that choose to leave because, you know, they, they weren't treated fairly or they were burned out or they were had issues at work. And I think the Kapoor Center actually put a report out maybe last year, the year before last, about how many people leave tech. I think that's another kind of under reported or under discussed issue it's like okay yeah training more people and getting them prepared for jobs but like how about we keep the people we do have which is a huge issue you had a great um talk uh called inviting yourself to the table mm-hmm. um and i thought that that had a really positive message to it do you can you just kind of give us the highlights of that i feel like it relates to a little bit of what you're describing yeah so i mean and and that's how i'm able to kind of get done what i get done because i sort of put my head in the sand and just work like i said the game is rigged either way so i just work hard and work through it and so i really just don't wait to be invited i just make what i want to see and then invite others and that's worked out for me you know what i mean so um, for example, Made in the Future, there wasn't a program that looked like I wanted to look. And so I was like, okay, I'll just make my own program. And then I'll invite all the people that I either know or want to know. <laughs> and then they'll show up and say yes. And so, you know, and then we reached out to certain sponsors that we wanted to have. And they, you know, either they will say no or yes. So I'm a huge believer in just like not waiting for permission. Just go mm-hmm. out and do it. You know, either... The answer is no or the answer is yes. I always say this. If there's going to be a deception, it, it might as well be me. So <laughs> if there's a, if I'm going to be in a space that wasn't designed for me or that people think that I ought not to be in and I make my way to that space, then, you know, great. You know, I'm not going to stop working and doing my thing or let arbitrary limits hit me if, if I can avoid them at, at all possible. So that's kind of how I think about it. And then, you know, I make sure to help others and lift others up as I go. Um, I never want to feel like, oh, I created my own success in a way. There's a lot of luck mixed in, good timing, help from others. You know, I get a lot of help from other people. And that's something I, I want to acknowledge as well. I have a lot of people that, like, support me and, you know, say my name in rooms that I'm not in and endorse me. Um, and so that's that's all that's been critical to my success. And I want to help others. That's kind of what was the driving thing behind Made in the Future. And I want to recreate that model for others. Who are some of the people that inspire you the most? Oh, I, m- me. 
I honestly, you know what? I don't get inspired a lot by other people. And I don't mean that in a bitchy way, but it's like, <laughs> I just don't see the point in role models. I feel like everyone's path is just so independent. Yeah. And so I just don't like look to other people to be inspired by. And I, I feel very strongly about that too. I, I've heard people say, oh, you can't be what you don't see. And I totally disagree with that. I totally disagree with that. I, I didn't see black designers when I grew up. I, I couldn't name you one black designer when I grew up, when I was a kid. So the idea that you can't be what you what you don't see is is silly to me. So I, I, I don't look to others for inspiration. Now, there are people that are doing things that I'm like, oh, you know, that's cool. I would love to do that one day. But I'm not like, I don't look at them and, and put them on a different pedestal than me. You know what I mean? Or uphold them in some idolatry way. It almost seems like the opposite. Like if someone like you is not there, then that's a reason that you should be there. <laughs> it seems like the, yeah, the kind of, exactly. maybe kind of the philosophy of inviting <laughs> yourself. Yeah. You know, I really, I never watched that talk. So I don't even know what I said. <laughs> so, I, so I need to go back and read the notes and then I need to update that talk. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes so people can can see what it was at the time. And if you if you if you post an update to it, um, let us know, and and we'll put a link to that too. You know, I always felt like I did that talk too early. Mm. I, I remember part of it was I love ninety nine U and I want to be involved with the conference. And I put myself in the target of Sean, Sean Blanda, who eventually invited me, and I always felt like I did that talk a little bit too early in my career. But, you know, timing is what it is. <laughs> well, there is always that kind of idea that you have later. Oh, I should have said this or that or I could have refined that. But mm-hmm. I mean, I think this is what well, I'm really excited to read um, the medium piece or whatever you put out from like your learnings from the past, uh, you know, few weeks of of doing the fellowship, because it's just an iterative thing, like your ideas and and perspective evolves over time. Totally. And, you know, I haven't done a public talk since then. Really? I haven't. It scared the shit out of me. <laughs> I that that talk traumatized me. Oh, I could no. not believe I was standing there in front of how many of a thousand people were there. Well, is there anything that that you wish you had said that you want to <laughs> update right now? <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> Putting you on the spot. <laughs> oh no, I'm not going to take that bait. Um. All right. Well, I'm really excited to um, see what comes of of all of your site projects and of uh, your work at Facebook next year. You know, if people want to kind of hear more about all of that, I, I would definitely encourage them to follow you on Twitter, Christy T. Um, there's there's uh, you know just uh, always great links, great ideas that you're sharing there. Is there anything else you want to point people to? No, that's the best place. That's my bullhorn. Uh-huh. <laughs> if people want to get all the updates, Twitter is the best place. Um, and, and yeah, if, if anyone is, um, is hiring, they should follow you and, and try to get in on, on some of these fellows. There's, it sounds like there's some really amazing people who came out of that. Absolutely. If you are hiring for junior level roles or apprenticeships, please come talk to me. I have wonderful people. And if you want to reinvent your entire uh, <laughs> culture at the company, it's going to be a it's going to be an expensive contract with Christy. Uh, yes, <laughs> but it's worth it. You know me. <laughs> You've followed me a long time. Then. <laughs> All right, Christy. Thank you. Have a nice day. You too. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review, could be just a sentence long, by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks, and see you next time.